This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. Hello and welcome to News Laundry Interviews. Today I have with me Professor Arun Kumar. Thank you so much for coming, sir. Uh, many of you may already know who he is because uh, he was frequently on several television panels uh, during the demonetization debate, but also before that, he is uh, the country's leading expert on black money. He has written extensively on it, done a lot of research on it, and most recently he's written this book called Understanding the Black Economy and Black Money in India. Uh, so in case you haven't picked it up, do, I've read it, and it's a really interesting read, and it actually busts quite a few myths that I had in my head also, which we will uncover in the course of this interview. We'll get into this book, uh, but before that I had, you know, one question. Yeah. Uh, now that the numbers are out, okay, it's not the final numbers, but it's the yes. you know the projections. And the claim is that uh, demonetization hasn't slowed down growth. Right. Or it hasn't slowed it down significantly. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Or do you think that is purely because what we'll come to later, how they calculate agriculture, it doesn't, it's not right. calculated how, many right. Money right. Is, right. how much money right. is in hand, it's how much yeah. Yeah. has produce been. Yeah. How would you explain that? So, you know, we have two major sectors in the economy. One is the organized sector, the other is the unorganized sector. And the data for both comes with a time lag, but the organized sector data does come. Mm -hmm. Now, we assume that the unorganized sector is behaving exactly the way the organized sector is behaving. But the big effect of demonetization was on the unorganized sector. So when we assume that the organized and the unorganized sector are going exactly the same way, then we are doing violence or injustice to the method. So the method should have changed. We should have you know, said that unorganized sector is moving differently than the organized sector and therefore calculated differently. Now, when you don't do that, an unorganized sector is 45% of GDP. So if that sector has declined by 40 to 50% as you know, many reports suggest, then that is not taken into account. And in fact, if the organized sector continues to rise at 5% or 6%, then we are assuming that the unorganized sector is also rising at 5 to 6% rather than declining. But will those numbers ever show up, whether directly or through a domino effect of consumption you know, in rural India? If they will, when will they show up? Will, will they so, reflect accurately? So data comes you know, for the unorganized sector separately only with a lag of three to four years. You know? Three to four years? Yes, because you see, what we do is we take ratios. So suppose we have pakka construction, like you know, our houses and uh, shops and so on. But then you also have a lot of unorganized sector housing like in slums and so on, right? Now that we assume is exactly in the same ratio as the organized sector housing, okay? So if the unorganized sector housing is declining because people are not able to construct, then that is not captured. Similarly, if you have services sector, you know, you have dhabas and you have restaurants. Now, if we assume that the restaurants are doing exactly the same way as the dhabas are doing, then we are making injustice, you know, to the dhabas because the dhabas demand may have declined. Similarly, in transport, you know, so all the unorganized sector, which is 45% of GDP, that is not getting captured at the moment. And that data will come with a time lag of three to four years. You know, that won't come immediately because it's all dependent on the ratios that we are seeing. So you're saying right now this number is a good number to bandy about and have headlines about, but yes. purely for academic reasons or policy reasons, it is not something you would really bet exactly. anything exactly. much on. Yes, so that's right. And you know, uh, like for the budget, if your tax revenue doesn't rise because you made the wrong assumption about the unorganized sector, then your deficit will get affected. Sure. So it will show up in those kind of things where the demand may sh uh, decline and where you know, the budgetary problems may come up because your budget deficit may turn out to be higher than what is projected. Now, uh, you have divided this book into uh, you know, three parts by and large. One is you know, what is black money all about and, and how it's calculated. Yes. Then one about the remedies mm -hmm. and, and between the two, 
you have also uh, discussed um, the errors of you know how we yes think about think it. about black money. So first, I just like to tell the audience. I didn't know that uh, real estate or growth in that sector is calculated not by actual transactions, but by the number of houses constructed. The method would, of calculating. The method the, of calculating is how much this is used, how much has that grown, and accordingly, it is assumed real estate has grown. Right. That is how it's calculated. Well, I'd make a distinction between real estate mm. and construction. Okay. When I construct a house, I'm not necessarily selling it. Sure. When I sell it, it's real estate business, right? Okay. So first I construct and in that the GDP is there. You know, the economy grows as a result of that. But when I'm only transacting it, suppose I sell my house to you, then there's no production taking place right. there, right? That's the real estate business, you know, right. where the constructed or ready-made houses are being booked or being transacted, right? So very little, only the brokerage is the production. So suppose I buy a house worth one crore rupees mm -hmm. from you, right? then only 1% of that is my brokerage, <clears throat> that's a 1 lakh rupee. So production is 1 lakh rupee, but the real estate business so is... How is crore. that factored into GDP number? So 1 lakh rupee is taken, but 1 crore is not taken into the GDP. Right. Okay. So therefore, when we say that now the 1 crore has become 20 crore, so there's a capital gain of 19 crores of rupees. That 19 crore doesn't go into the GDP. Only the brokerage... But how do the people who calculate GDP determine whether the inputs used are for for the okay. selling or for yeah. oneself? So, so therefore, as far as construction is concerned, what I do is I look at the amount of glass used, the timber used, the cement used, the six major components that go into formal sector housing, and I make a ratio that so much steel, etc., together will make a house of this value, right? So knowing how much of steel, etc., is being used, I can work out how much construction is taking place. But you can't work out how, how much that construction is actually for further sale or for... No, so that you don't know. So that you need brokerage data as to how much transaction is taking place. So you have the registrar's office from registrar's office, you know... In how which much case, that in any case will be discounted by 50% because so, the black-white real estate, uh, you know, when you purchase... A, a, that, and B, that is not a, a, a production. And therefore, that doesn't need to be even calculated, okay. okay? So that's only for the purposes of circulation. So I have my, my black, I transfer it to you. You get the black, you transfer it to somebody else. So I have to generate black somewhere and transfer it to you. Right. So where it's generated, it should be counted there rather than this transaction. So these are called capital gains. So right. capital gains are not counted because these are called transfer incomes. So what are in production are called factor incomes and only factor incomes are counted. That's why even though the black money report that was prepared by the ministry called the white paper on black money, that said the biggest generator of uh, black income is real estate. Right. My argument is the biggest circulator of black income, but not the, but generator. Not the generator of black income. Sure. Because I need to generate that black income somewhere yes, in production, right. somewhere in some other activity. Either by under invoicing or, or by over, corrupt deals. Yeah. But <laughs> any mechanism I can have. So those are transfers and that's why real estate is the circulator, not the generator. And we have to tackle the generation part of it. Okay, the second thing is that you have in the book said that, you know, the black economy is at 62% of GDP or 93 lakh crore. crores this year. How does one actually come to this? I mean, okay. is, is there any... Yes, so there are, there are four methods by which we estimate the size of black economy. Now, these are all basically large methods. They don't go into how much police generates and how much the judiciary is generating and how much the teaching is generating and how much the business is generating and how much the film is generating, etc. So what we do is there's something called a monetarist approach where I'm looking at the money supply in the economy mm. and from that estimating it. Then there's something called input-output approach. So I'm looking at how much energy is consumed by society and how much of that energy is being used to generate black or white. 
Then the third is survey. I do surveys of various activities and I combine them together. Fourth is what's called the fiscal approach, where I go sector by sector. So I first divide the economy into legal sector and illegal sector. So illegal sector being narcotic drug trafficking and crime and you know smuggling and such like activity where the complete income is black income. Right. Okay. So you get an estimate of that from various means. Then you look at the legal sectors. There you further divide it between agriculture and industry and finance and so on and public sector and private sector. So you look at those and then try to aggregate that. So this is the fiscal approach which was first used by Caldor, Professor Caldor from Cambridge, mm. who came in 1955-56 and he estimated the size of black economy then to be 4 to 5 percent of GDP. This is in India. This is in India. He came to India in 55. Mm. Mm. Then we have the Wanchu Committee in 1970 who gave the estimate for 1969-70 as 7 percent of GDP. And they all use this? They use the fiscal approach, okay. Okay? okay, sector by sector approach. Because you see different sectors generate black incomes in different ways. Right. Okay? So like in agriculture, there's no income tax and therefore by definition, there's no black income generation. Whether you declare your income or you don't declare your income, it's not But that black. remains part of the unorganized sector, but it's not black. And it's what you black. have said yeah. in this book is often the two are conflated. That's right, uh, yes. The black, what we call black economy and black money are separate things. Black money may be or may not be a part of the black economy. And money that is part of the black economy may not necessarily be black money. Right. So, you know, there are two concepts again in economics. One is a flow and the other is a stock. So like at the top of your building here, you have a water tank. It has right. water. That's a stock of water there. Now how much is flowing into the pipes and to your taps? That is the flow. So stock may be very large, but the flow may be very small. And the flow may be very large, but the stock may be very small. So stock doesn't mean flow. That's why black money doesn't mean black economy. Uh, yeah, you've okay. given the same example yes. in the book yes. that, you know, it's, it's a certain amount of black money. So what you're saying is that the black money that is stored yeah may or may not be part of the black economy. No, would be part of the black economy, but it is the wealth that has been accumulated out of your black income. But also money that is part of what we call the black economy and not necessarily be black money. Black money is one component of your black wealth. So when you have black wealth, you may put it into real estate, you may put it into gold, you may put it into business, you may put it into inventory. So many, many ways, just like in the white economy, when I do my saving annually, I can put my money into banks, I can put them into sure. various. So black money is the cash part. Right. So how much cash is there? One percent of the black wealth, because I don't earn any return on it. So the rest is invested in other ways. The rest ways. is invested in all kinds and of things. And you also have said that most people have overestimated how much is lying overseas. Yes. Uh, a, why do you think that is? And I mean, what evidence would you have to say that the overseas wealth is overestimated? Okay. So my estimate, you know, we have done an estimate between 1948 and 2012, and we find only 10% of the black income generated in India goes abroad every year. How do you come to that? Uh, so we have estimated by what is called the partner country data. So how much under invoicing, over invoicing is going on. Suppose you're sending, say, electronic goods to USA. You price it at a low price here, but there you have to price it the usual price. So there's an IMF data called the partner country data, huh? mm -hmm. where if I'm exporting something, what is the price being reflected there in the US? That's the actual price. But what about the kind of money that lies in Swiss banks? So, you know, Singapore's yeah. private banks. So, so I'm coming to that. So therefore you generate every year this 10% which is going abroad. Now a part of that is round trip back into India. Right. 30 to 40% comes, so comes back through uh, Mauritius. Now that route may be closed, but Singapore, Dubai, there are some like 90 tax havens through which you can bring your money back. Huh? Mm. Now, when that money comes back, there only 50 to 60% is left abroad. Okay? Out of that also, you make consumption. You send your children abroad for vacation, you do health, you buy a yacht, you buy diamonds and so on. So what is left in liquid form is a very tiny amount. 
So our estimate is that the loss to the country between 48 and 2012 may be about two trillion dollars. But that includes the interest that would have been earned, right? But if you brought back the money back to then, India, then, then the interest is also not earned. It. So it's an estimate of two trillion dollars. So what may be lying abroad may be only six, seven hundred billion dollars at this point of time in liquid form. Okay, which could possibly be brought back. But for that, you have to identify whose money is there. So how is the money taken abroad? It's taken abroad through a process called layering. So there are 90 tax havens. So I take my money from India to say St. Uh, Lucia, St. Lucia to St. Uh, uh, Helen, then from St. Helen to Panama, Panama to Cayman, Cayman to Jersey, and then to Switzerland. So my money has gone from Jersey Island to Switzerland in the name of some shell company called Crocodile. So when you ask the Swiss government how much money does Arun Kumar have, they, they say Arun Kumar doesn't have any yeah, money. It's, it's money come from Crocodile yeah. Company, which is a British principality, Jersey Island, so it's British money. So when you ask them, they say only 8,000 crores of Indian money is there. So who has the largest amount of money in Swiss banks? The British, because they have the largest number of tax havens, okay? And they set up these tax havens because after the, you know... So there is actually no real accurate way of really knowing because because the amount of layers that you know one yes. passes through to reach you know so how much is lying abroad you may not know exactly but how much is going out that you can estimate and we have done that estimation using this partner country data from IMF and the World Bank so that that data gives us some accurate uh, idea of it but that still leaves out Hawala okay that still may leave out something like you know your uh, uh, misinvoicing of certain other items you know smuggling etc that you have to make some estimate but in trade, what is going out and coming in, that yes, you can yes, get yes. at. Yeah. Okay, I would just like to come to, uh, you know, the viewers can yeah. pick up the book and read um, in detail many of the things that you've spoken about. I want to come to part five remedies, uh, which you divided into short, uh, you short know, short, medium, medium and long term. Uh, now, optimistic as I am, yeah. reading the remedies, the possible remedies, I I'm not convinced that anyone would want to do anything about this, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. And I'd like to know what sure. you think. Yeah. Uh, in the short term, of course, once you said once you said RTI, you also mentioned the Lokpal. Uh, ever since RTI came in, let's face it, it hasn't been as effective as we thought it would be. Of course, yeah. The denials are huge during Mayawati's government in UP. Yes. They pretty much right. they didn't appoint an information commissioner. Modi in Gujarat didn't. Right. Uh, we know what's happening with the CIC, the pending cases. So the way I see it, there was a ray of hope there. Yeah. But all political parties have come together and make sure that they shut that. Yes. Right? Correct. A Lokpal with any teeth seems highly unlikely now. Yes. It's uh, highly improbable. These are the short-term measures. In the long-term measures, you had, you know... You also, Hawala was a short-term measure that right. you can take because you track Hawala houses, you know. Mm. So, like HSBC case, you know, even though HSBC has denied it, but HSBC was known to be doing Hawala right. when you interviewed people, etc. So, you know, I mean, what, what I'm saying is there are certain short-term measures, but, you know, where does the problem arise? The problem arises that you had at least 40 committees and commissions mm. over the last 70 years which have gone into the problem. They made thousands of suggestions, huh? and hundreds have been implemented, like voluntary disclosure schemes, like reduction of tax rate. You know, we used to have 97.5% highest tax rate in 1971. We brought it down to 30%. You know, most of the controls in the 80s, etc., are gone. MRTP, FERA, small-scale reservation, licensing, etc. You know, and yet the black economy is growing. The reason is that it's actually political. Yes. Okay? And this is where we have to affect it. You know, that's why the long term is very important. Because you have, without the structural changes, the short term measures also will be only marginal. And 
in in your remedies political reform is a long it is a long term reform and and reform of businesses because you see businesses have to be accountable corporates, yeah. yes corporates as we saw in satyam's case we had a fantastic board of uh, governors you know including former cabinet secretary dean of ibs and so on and yet there was no accountability mm -hmm. so board of directors have to be made accountable in businesses similarly judicial accountability is very crucial with a large number of cases that are stuck in the courts and that leads to contempt of court you know contempt of justice because i can get away my case can last for 15 16 20 years so therefore what i suggested is a short term measures will work only temporarily unless the long term measures are also put into place so you see given that it's a political problem political reform is very very crucial coming to the long term measures what i understand is that as an economist and economics doesn't assume human behavior uh, based on person's goodness of one's heart yes is in self interest yes now we saw demonetization modi ji wanted to make right. you know india digital but we didn't see any such reform coming for the up election punjab election saying that all political parties would only spend money digitally yes their money was spent like water we saw the hoardings Correct. we all know what happened so while you'd want digitization for the rest of the yes aam aadmi you don't want it for the political right. parties that is because it is in their self interest that is how they fund election that is how they make money and not just this uh, party any party right so what i understand is it is not in their self interest to correct this but they are the only ones in a position to correct this so if i were to just take that logic forward yes, yes. if as economics assumes people act in self interest and it is in the political party self interest not to deal with black money as a problem then it will never be dealt with you are absolutely right so there are two things i would say one is because the black economy leads to tremendous inefficiency the country has been losing 5% rate of growth since the mid 70s on an average so today the indian economy could have been a 15 trillion dollar economy instead of a 2.2 trillion dollar economy so we are losing some like 13 trillion dollar of development every year so each one of us would have been seven times richer instead of having 1500 1700 per capita you would have been at about 12000 dollars per capita so therefore it's in the nation's self interest to actually tackle the black economy but not in the political party yeah, so i'm coming to that so now the political parties are part of the system which has a short sighted this thing that black economy helps them okay and that's why they won't do it so who can do it the public as long as the public votes for the corrupt you know we see it all the time that large number of criminals and others are getting elected and more of more of them are getting elected so unless there are movements which check this political system and that's why you see india has had many movements like the navnirman movement in gujarat in 73 74 jp movement bofors time there's a movement harshad mehta time in 93 there was a small movement then the dot com boom when it burst in 2001 there was and then the anna hazare ramdev movement but no movement is sustained you know only when movement sustain would the political pressure be sustained at the moment the political system knows that if a movement comes up how to undermine it but movements are the only way that politicians will be in check because then they know that their vote depends on it at the moment they know that they can get elected because my corrupt man is better than your corrupt man because he will do my uh, dirty work right. right so therefore corruption and black corn we have got marginalized or so normalized corruption is not a election issue anymore. yes because every party marginalizes that issue because they they are themselves and people now expect that only movements will change that consciousness so political reform comes with movements political reform doesn't come because the political parties want to reform 
political parties have short term uh, view they want to get to power and help their friends right so that's why when the election expenditure limit today is 70 lakhs of rupees they may be spending 7 crores or 15 sure. crores and that money is coming from the corrupt and the that's others stupid. who know the quid pro quo who want a quid pro quo so you know for instance in my previous book i had uh, done a survey of 15 members of parliament in 1998 election who'd won the elections and they said that they're spending 1.29 crore when the election expenditure limit was 15 lakh. And bulk of that was illegal expenditure. Right. Like you'd hire gundas, you know, you, you'd distribute food, you'd distribute sarees, you'd distribute kambals in the last three days. So 35% expenditure went in that. Then you have vote bank politics, so you buy vote banks. So all this is illegal expenditure. That's why you see, it's the vested interests who get together to elect certain people so that they can then benefit out of it. Now, as long as that is the system, then public interest is no, nowhere there. So public and, interest and, and, will come with movements. And corporates are also no less um, guilty because yeah. um, the market is warped. While we may have got rid of many of the other rules that you spoke about, the fact is that to really succeed in business, yes. you have to have the government on your side. Correct. Or you can't succeed. I mean, this whole myth of the market in right. India, in my view, right. is right. bullshit. Correct. 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 Which is why everybody falls in life. No matter what budget, everyone says yes. a very good budget. Yes. From yes. Manmohan Singh's time to now. Correct. Correct. So it's not in the corporate's interest. Yes. Uh, it's not in the politician's interest. Right. It is not in the interest of many of the others, like you said in your book also you've spoken about. It's not like Mayavati will be any better for corruption than others because then her vote bank says we are being serviced. Right. Um, in BJP's time, their vote bank says we are being serviced. So there is always, it's going to be this fractured... Yes, correct. So, uh, what makes you think it will change? Because so only movements. What? No, but even that will not, because historically it hasn't changed. But the movement is also a very small minority. The large, the most influential members, I'm talking about politicians and corporates, it's not in their interest yes. to change it. So well, in the long-term interest it is, but not in the short-term interest. Because if, but suppose Indian economy is seven times larger, each one of them would be seven times larger also. So, you know, say if Mr. Ambani is $22 billion, if the economy is seven times larger, he'd be $150 billion and richer than Bill Gates and so on. So, in the long run, it's of interest, but we are all like, you know... But if I take it the other way, maybe he wouldn't be the richest man in India if it was pure market working. If, if Dhirubhai Ambani, the famous, he knows yeah. how to manage the environment. Right. Correct, correct, yeah. So, so he, he may not have been relevant yeah. at all. Well, that, that's true, that, you know, some people feel that, you know, this is the only way they can do it. But as far as the economy as a whole is concerned, you know, it's in the interest of everybody to tackle this economy so that development is better. I mean, we live in very pitiful uh, living conditions. You know, very few countries in the world have this kind of, you know, uncivilized existence where lack of toilets, you know, lack of sanitation, disease, you know, environmental pollution, etc. So it's in the long-term interest of society. Now, you're absolutely right. The, those corporates who are successful today, they may feel that in the new environment, they would not have been uh, that successful. Therefore, they may not uh, want that change. So when will that change? So we have the example of the national movement. National movement... After 1857, you know, the national movement started picking up only 40 years later in the 1890s. And we didn't ask for Poon Swaraj till 1927. In 1947, we got independence. So movements take time. So what you're saying is it takes a while. It takes a, a long time. It, okay. And, you know, it depends on how many people come out. So like, for instance, it is said that during the Quit India movement, only 2% of Indians came out. But that was strong enough for the system to change and for the system to put pressure on the British. 
now my feeling is that even if 1% Indians come out, that would put enough pressure on the government to begin to change. So we saw during Anna Hazari and Ramdev movement that, you know, the government started shivering, you know. And that's why, you know, they started thinking about Lokpal and they held parliament session at night, etc. But then the government found a way of circumventing this movement right. and very quickly undermined it. So movements are crucial and history is not in my control. History is not in any individual's control. We are often very impatient that it should change should happen within my lifetime. But history is not my lifetime. History is a history of society. And that may take 20 years, that may take 50 years, that may take 70 years. But the direction should be that. Okay, for those of you who want to see the in detail the remedies that uh, Professor Kumar has suggested, you can pick up this book. But now I want to ask you a couple of questions yeah. that are outside the book. As an economist, yeah. you have studied economics in Delhi University. Uh, you went to Princeton. I went for physics. I was I'm, I was doing physics at the Delhi University in Princeton, and then I switched to economics. Oh, I see. So you were in Princeton doing physics, and then you switched to economics, and you came back to Delhi. Many say that economics is not a science; it's a philosophy. And depending on your philosophical position, you can choose the data, the methodology to reinforce your philosophy. Correct. In universities and colleges where economics is taught, how does the political environment in a college determine what students learn there? So you see, uh, like you said, economics, like in social sciences, has many schools of thought. Because what is the fact that you're analyzing? Huh? So there's this book, uh, uh, you know, in history, huh? uh, What is a Fact, you know, by Carr. Now, uh, what he says is that, you know, there's a bridge, say the, the old Delhi bridge. Every day, a lot of people are crossing it. But one particular incident when the British crossed it, you know, may be more important, you know. So how do you pick your facts to analyze? So the same data on inflation, same data on growth, may be picked up by different people and analyzed differently. Huh? And that depends on your school of thought. So you could be a Marxist, you could be a Keynesian, you could be a neoclassical economist and so on. So there are many schools of thought. So your picking of the facts, and the analysis of the fact depends on the school of thought that you come from. Okay. What school of thought do you come from? Well, I come from an eclectic, this thing, I believe in Gandhian uh, thought, okay. that you know, in the long run, uh, we have to think about principles. In the short run, uh, we can do very little. And in the long run, we don't know where we are headed. So okay. only principles of society, like you know, Gandhi's principle of last person first. Mm. You know, if that is adopted, then we'll have democracy. Huh? Right. If we say that there's enough for everybody's need but not for everybody's greed, which Gandhi took from Tolstoy, then that's an environmental principle, you know? Because consumerism is what is impacting our environment. So if we all restrict, and he said there should be voluntary poverty, I can't tell you to be poor, but I can voluntarily accept that I must not consume, okay? Nobody can preach to me that, you know, try, try and not consume, because then I'll not, uh, I'll rebel. But if I understand why the environment is affected, then I'll do that. So there are many of these Gandhian principles that are very crucial for the long-term interest of society. And that's all we have, these principles. But how does the college environment determine okay, the... So, so the, in India, what has happened is, unfortunately, the colleges and universities, most of them, are what I call deriving the knowledge base from the West and recycling it in the Indian context. So I call most of the Indian economists and most of the Indian intellectuals are derived intellectuals. We derive, we take the knowledge base from there. And that's exactly what Macaulay wanted in 1835 minutes of Macaulay. He said, look, there's no education, there's no learning, there's really no knowledge in the Orient, which he meant India and China. So we will give them the knowledge. Hmm. So we'll teach them in English so that we can then pass on our knowledge to them. And that has meant that we have been borrowing from there. So our problems are distinctly our problems, but we borrow from them. And that's why, you know, I'm not Marxist, I'm not this, I'm not that, because I believe Indian problems have to be solved by Indian means. 
so because black economy is not studied abroad so in india also apart from me and a few of my students nobody studies the black economy okay even though it's very crucial but for understanding in the west it's not so they don't spend that kind of time and you know so it's 1% in sweden it's 5% in us it's 5% in uk so for them it's really not that material sure. so therefore we have all become derived intellectuals so what the environment in our indian uh, universities is that we learn by rote because research is not being done by most people only when you do research do you generate new ideas and new ideas are needed by society so i call our solutions are non solutions right. you know because each solution that we pick up creates five new problems so like look at the urbanization pattern that no i i get what you're yeah. saying but don't you think there is certain inevitability to do that because even culturally if you say that our problems are our problem and we've a i mean i'd i'd assume knowledge is like this pool where everybody contributes irrespective of country ethnicity and you know you take it from there and do what you will with it uh, uh i read an article just a few days ago that india keeps claiming that it i think it's in the economist that it invented the zero but it has yet to prove it so now even that is being questioned yes but whoever came up with it someone used it and they used it correct correct yeah took it a step forward but considering historically we have not had a culture of documenting stuff it was you know when you say by rote it was an oral tradition even now and that is manifest in how our national archives are maintained if you ever go to that office yes. you can see how they do it yes. there is no respect given to documenting stuff accurately so i my colleague wouldn't have to do anything they, where would we get our knowledge from i mean so, there is no there is no way i can get it from any where else than a culture that believes in documenting and organizing it so we also had very good libraries and so on you know takshila nalanda etc you know so we also used to document and that's why these tampatras where the shlokas and the knowledge was kept etc so it's not that we never had it you know Uh, you had the court historians you know who write you know like akbar nama and so on who write what was happening during those times etc so it's not that we didn't have it but it's somewhere we lost the idea that ideas have to be generated you know so you know, my mother is a historian you know so i used to ask her so she said in 7th century ad you know the brahmins who were the pinnacle of the society they started saying we have all the knowledge that there is now the moment you said that say that we have all the knowledge there is the, then the curiosity goes you know and that's why you you see that by 12th century most of the great indian universities they decline uh, takshila nalanda nagarjuna etc but that is the exact period when in europe the great universities started coming up padua pavia bologna cambridge paris etc so there the curiosity rose here the curiosity started coming down so you see for instance during so brahmanism is responsible for the demise of well it's societal you know it's not just brahmins in that sense but it's societal that somewhere society lost that curiosity so we don't generate our own ideas while you're right the pool of knowledge is the same but how it applies to a given society is different because each society's stage of development is different each society's needs are different our culture is different you know so we need that knowledge in a different way we need it in our own way you know so pool of knowledge by itself so like science is the same you know if you throw a ball it will fall down yeah. but how will that used in in your technology will depend on what your view of about society Absolutely. is Absolutely. culture and society sure. so it is that which you know will give us our own unique thing now that's what i saw at princeton there was a unique kind of a way in which you looked at things you know you looked for new knowledge so there at a very young age you know by while doing phd i did some original experiments whereas here at the phd level you do the same experiments that are being done abroad and you try and replicate them 
So in uh, economics also what most of the economists do is they take a model from there from the US or UK and then apply Indian data to it and re recycle it you know. But where is the new knowledge that is coming out of that, the new thing. Similarly at Ames when I checked with my friends in 1996 before writing my book, I said you know what are the new procedures you're developing. So they say no, no, the procedures are developed in London or in Pittsburgh and we take them and we generate Indian data. So like for instance cancer, you know, smoking causes cancer. So we provide the Indian data for what is the impact, right? So the new knowledge is not being generated relevant to our society and our society is a very different stage of development than the West. You know, where are poverty, where are common people. So socially relevant knowledge generation is essential. And that's why I call solutions that we borrow from outside non-solutions. Because each solution that you know, we borrow, yes, so, so like for instance, <laughs> urbanization that we have created has created 50 more problems of transportation, of slums, of you know, environmental pollution, of new kind of diseases. Because when you pack people in close proximity, new diseases and ra rapidly the diseases spread, you know. So we have to worry about what kind of urbanization is good for us rather than simply borrow it from there, you know. Right. So therefore, and I, I, I was, I mean, the UP, UPA government really pushed for making these urban centers. I remember all their policymakers would talk extensively about, you know, even in SCZ, you have to make these urban centers. It's inevitable. Urbanization is inevitable. So you might as well go yeah. with that. What you're saying is that is just because it worked in the US or yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. It was a mistake to try to it's, adopt it here. So China uh, started uh, talking about SCZs, but they also realized that these SCZs won't work and they gave up the SCZ policy. Mm. Now, we should not just simply borrow. We should, we should not simply say Bombay should become like Shanghai. You know, right. you know that Bombay has to be Bombay. Right. It's like saying JNU cannot be Harvard. JNU has to be JNU and Harvard has to be Harvard right. because you cannot copy originality. That's a contradiction in terms. If I say right. copy Harvard, then you'll be always a copy. You'll never be original. So therefore, we have to have originality in our thinking and that is very crucial. And that's what I find missing in most of Indian education institutions. Whereas that's what you see in the great institutions of uh, uh, the West. Okay, one last question. Uh, this has to do with the political turmoil we're seeing everywhere with Brexit and Trump and the protectionist policies. Um, when I was younger, we were told that um, there are no losers in globalization. Yes. Even Mr. Bhagwati kind of yes. suggests that in his book. Correct. And at that time, that seemed the conventional accepted knowledge because the West was pushing that because they wanted more markets. Right. Now it appears there are always losers. I don't know whether they lose in the long term. But in the short term, there are always losers. Do you think the world has been fed a myth for the last four generations? And Brexit, Trump, protectionism is an outcome of that. And now that the West is saying, actually, no, you know, it does have losers. Where does it leave economies like ours, where he may be a very good man and all, Manmohan Singh and, and his like, they have taken India down a shit way, which now is being rejected. What do you think? Is globalization zero-sum game that there are no losers or there inevitably will be losers? So, you know, globalization is a long-standing process. First thing, we must appreciate that. But the question is, what kind of globalization? So, you see, when Buddhism went from India to Japan, that was also globalization. When Bali became a Hindu island so far away, that's also globalization. We used to trade with Southeast Asia and uh, Arab countries and so on. So, globalization is a long-standing process. But what happened was colonization. For India, it became a one-way process where everything was received and very little was contributed. Okay? Now, it is this one-way globalization that has been affecting India. So, who's dominating? The bigger countries, the well-developed countries, the OECD countries, they have dominated this process of globalization for their own self-interest. And within that also, it is the interest of the elite. So, I call globalization the globalization the elite of the world. 
the elite of the world are getting together and they have been feeding this that it's good for everybody okay but clearly there is a differentiation because it's very narrowly conceived you know it's what what was called the washington consensus mm -hmm. by uh, williamson in 1989 that there was a consensus amongst the various global institutions like IMF, World Bank, etc., etc., uh, including the OECD countries, that this was good for them. But good for them meaning what? Good for their elite. Okay? So the marginal people got marginalized because one of the principles of this marketization process is called dollar vote. So what is dollar vote? If you have one dollar and I have one million dollars, I have one million votes, you have one vote. Okay, so who determines the market outcome? Those who have the larger amount of dollars. So in the world, the US dominates because its small population contributes 20% of the world's GDP. Whereas India with a much larger population contributes to only 2% of the GDP, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, one American equals 40 Indians because their per capita income equals 40 times uh, our per capita income. So there is going to be a marginalization because this is not democracy. It's not one person, one vote, but one dollar, one vote. So those who have more dollars will have more votes. Now this is the process that has been going on and as a result that those who are marginal in the market became more marginalized. That was true of the US, that's true of the Europe, that's true of India, that's true of Africa and every country. Now as long as this anti-democracy or undemocratic process is on, this process will be there where the income distribution has become very skewed. So as Krugman wrote in 2005, the data that had come out from Census Bureau showed that disparity in the US had become more than what it used to be in the 1920s, yeah. before the Great Depression. You know, so therefore, you know, the whole system, post-1975. As of now, worldwide inequity is highest as it's been exactly, ever in the history exactly. of civilization. And that process started after 1975 when the Reaganism and Thatcherism came, when the new consensus on the market's principles came, where speculation was encouraged, greed was encouraged. So greed has been raised to a new high pedestal. It's not that greed never existed. Greed always was there. But now it's been... But it was made know, into virtue. Virtue. So earned and therefore the bubble was created, you know, this big bubble of financial... And the frequency uh, bubbles also became uh, uh, yes. closer together. So so, so this huge bubble collapsed in 2007-8, right? Then the real crisis came because at that point wealth effect was taking place with the stock market was rising, the middle class was consuming more. But once the stock market collapsed, then suddenly the consumption collapsed, suddenly the employment collapsed, etc. And that created a huge crisis. Now that has been converted into a kind of xenophobic situation where in the advanced countries people are saying, because these migrants are coming in, therefore our employment or is jobs less. Shifted uh, jobs are shifted to overseas, to India, China, etc. to manufacturing, etc. etc. So the crisis of each society is manifesting itself in Brexit or in Trumpism or in other forms like in Europe also the right wing is uh, moving ahead. Sure. So this one-way globalization based on entirely the market principle and the state retreating. You see the welfare state which came after the Second World War actually t tended to level out things. Tended to and it provided a safety things. net for yes. much so, of society. So, which... so even the World Bank recognized that these policies that they are producing actually were making people fall below poverty line. That's why they propagated the safety net idea. That you need a safety net to prevent people from falling below. Now the new technology is even more disruptionist. So like for instance, these driverless cars and driverless trucks that are going to come will displace millions of drivers, you know. So the, the ILO report is that in India, that the 60% of uh, people who are employed will become unemployed. Now where will they go? Because of this new technology. Over the last four decades, the conventional wisdom has been, at least the economists who made, you know, the mainstream, the, the yeah. mainstream that globalization is a good thing and everyone will benefit. Now, of course, it's not yes. necessarily the case. 
where do you see the next three decades? What is the conventional wisdom or the mainstream wisdom of so economy now, going to be? So now, you see, uh, what, what's happening is that there are two streams. So you have Bernie Sanders on the one hand and Cobin on the other hand coming up because they are reflecting from the left this thing that the labor and the poor, etc. are feeling. Huh? And that's why Cobin could win. That's why Bernie Sanders did quite well in the US, etc. But on the other hand, the right also saying exactly the same thing. So if you heard a speech of Trump and you heard a speech of Bernie Sanders, they're very similar because they're raising similar issues from two different perspectives. But the solutions, hmm? but the solutions are very different in the sense that they would operate on it very differently. Who would they energize and who would they, you know, bring so now, into the do you see a, 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 the general mainstream consensus now being anti-globalization? Well, from the left and the right, it would be like that, okay? So that is what is going to happen. And I think the European elections are coming, very crucial elections. Netherlands has already had it, you know, then France and then uh, Germany and so on. Italy is also having a lot of its own problems. So I think from the mainstream, uh, the uh, rich economies, there's a different consensus that would emerge in the coming days. But how that would play itself out is not very clear at this point of time, because it might lead to turmoil rather than to a very well-defined path the economies may take. But India has to be very cautious because we are at the receiving end of this entire process of marketization. So in India, we have to be much more careful because our situation is not that of the US or UK, etc., where they have a lot more, you know, sort of resilience to tackle this problem. But in India, our poor don't have that. And also the social fissures aren't as high there. I mean, yes. the, the, the likelihood of an armed rebellion happening in places where stomachs are full is lesser than when people have nothing to lose and are starving correct, to death. Correct. So, you know, I mean, already you can see, you know, the, the well-off sections like the Partidars and the Jats and the Kapus and the Marathas, they're already protesting for the last few years because they, they, their youth is not getting employment and therefore they're protesting that, you know, so you have this uh, classic case uh, in 2015 where in UP 368 jobs of peons were advertised and you got 23 lakh applications wow. of its 380 were PhDs and 2 lakh were B.Tech, M.Tech, B.Com, M.Com, whereas all you required was a fifth class degree and riding a cycle. You know, so you can see the kind of desperation of the youth. This desperation of the youth is everywhere. And, and this dangerous. is dangerous because socially we are becoming very unstable. So politically, economically and socially, the world over, countries are becoming very unstable, you know. You saw in Greece what happened, you know. Yeah. The, the new party came in with the promise that they would give an alternative and then they had to do exactly what the European uh, uh, bank and the IMF had uh, told them to do. So in other words, they couldn't work towards an alternative. So we need an alternative. We need to work towards an alternative and create a social consensus around the alternative. Otherwise, we'd also face very uncertain times. Thank you, Professor Kumar. Uh, once again, uh, the book is called Black Money, Understanding the Black Economy. Uh, it's by Professor Arun Kumar. Uh, I look forward to your next book. Hopefully, it will be in the philosophical space of economics. Thank I you. think that's a lot more fun, right? Thank you. But thank you for coming. Thanks. Bye. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.